Yeah, he's right, though. This is our fifth installment on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I hope you've memorized it by now. Um, you should have. Um, it's a great and glorious passage. So let's do this. Will you stand with me as we read God's word? I'm going to read it out loud. If you, I hope you have a Bible. You can read it along with me in your Bible. If not, it'll be on the screen here for you. Hear God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. But you, you can be seated. Alrighty. Well, we've been looking at this passage, yes, for five weeks, looking at the blessings of God, and we spent a considerable amount of time looking at this issue of the fact of God's choosing, that he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us and working through some of the challenges with that that we have, uh, that looking at his will for our life and juxtaposition with necessarily our will, uh, that these things are all for the purpose of his glory and grace. And then these last two weeks, last week and this week, we are looking at these blessings of first holiness and blamelessness, This is why God has predestined us. He has chosen us that we might be holy and blameless. And then this morning we look at the other component of his blessings that he has given us. And that is that he is adopting. It says in verse 5, the focus or the, the, the phrase that we're going to be looking at this morning is he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He predestined us for adoption. Adoption. So today, that's what we're going to look at, the spiritual blessing of adoption. God wants what we see here from all of eternity. He is predestined before the foundation of the world to bring into his household, to form for himself a house full of sons and daughters whom he can love. And by that, by seeing that this is his predestining work, understand that adoption is plan A. It is not plan B. It is not a mistake. It was not God scrambling Because he needed to suddenly fill his house. No, this has always been his plan to bring sons and daughters into his household. And he has done this by his own initiative. He has conferred upon us the status of sons. And that status, that longing to do this, flows from the heart of God. It is part of his character. In fact, in Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, it says that God is the father of the fatherless. And a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary, that is, the lonely, in a home. That is such good news. This is the character of our God. This is the longing of his heart, and it's the plan that he has for this world and for his salvation. In fact, we can say, in fact, J.I. Packer does say in his book, Knowing God, that adoption, our adoption, so that God is our Father, is the highest blessing in in the gospel. It is the ultimate end of our redemption, the sense of what we experience and the blessing of it. Now, also, also, we saw a couple weeks ago, the ultimate, ultimate end is God's glory. But if God's blessing poured out on us, the things he does in order to bring himself glory, the ultimate blessing for us is that we would be adopted. When Paul is talking about adopting you, 
It comes after this talk about as great as it is, these other blessings about the fact that God regenerates you and he calls you to himself and he forgives your sins and he justifies you and makes you right in his sight. But all of those blessings are in order to lead to this, that he would be able to call you his child and bring you into his presence. It is the highest statement of God's love to call you his child. 1 John 3, verse 1, we already read it in the assurance of pardon this morning. It says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. So what's the manner of his love? It's this, that we would be called children of God. The highest and supreme way that God shows you his love for you is that he makes you a child. Now, what do we understand and know about adoption? It flows out of a, a Paul. Paul, in fact, is the, the only New Testament writer who uses this term adoption. And the idea of adoption is really, uh, it's not entirely foreign to the Old Testament. There are shadows of it. God is called Father and Israel is Son. But that is the only kind of place we see this idea of adoption coming into, 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 into fold there in the Scriptures. But Paul brings it to the forefront and his understanding of this word adoption comes not from a Jewish understanding of adoption, but from a Roman understanding of adoption. Paul is bringing this from the Roman world into the Christian world. You see, in Roman law, they would be adoption secured for the adopted child a right, the right to bear the name of the father and to own the property of the one who has adopted them. There were legal rights. It was, about, it was a legal move. A legal declaration, that's what adoption is. And with this adoption comes all sorts of blessings, privileges as children. If you can think of this, this is not only the highest blessing, but it's a blessing that unfolds into many other smaller blessings or other blessings contained within adoption. If you think about it, illustrate it from uh, like a, on a computer, you have the expand and collapse box. You hit the little plus button, all of a sudden it opens up to many more things. When we talk about our adoption, we're talking about any number of blessings and privileges that we have. And so we're going to look at three this morning. That our adoption brings to us three blessings as sons and daughters. First, the first blessing is it gives you a new identity. Or we might say a new name. A new name. Now, in order to, get to, to bring us to this point of understanding our new name, we first have to get some bad news. You see... Why does adoption even need to happen in the first place? Because God, we are not born in this world naturally with God as our father. We are not born children of God. And actually, it says in multiple other places in the scriptures that we are born children of wrath. So much so even in some places it goes so far as to say we are born as children of the evil one. But what we understand, this is something that is, is confused in our world in which people often talk about God. Well, he's the father of all things and of all people. And there is a sense in which he is. He is the creator of all things, isn't he? But it's, his fatherhood goes far beyond simply a creative measure. For example, there are many things that we create that doesn't necessarily bring into fold the idea of fatherhood. For example, we call Henry Ford the father of the Model T of the personal car. Now, this doesn't mean that Henry Ford would each and every day take a Model T home and eat with it at the dinner table and tuck it in at night and sing the Model T a song and be in intimate relational connection with the Model T. We're clearly talking about something more when we talk about fatherhood, more than simply the ability to create. God is, yes, the creator of all things, and that way he is the father. But he ultimately, what we see is we, he is not our father relationally. 
the way we really need him to be our father because we have rejected him. And this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says you can know the creator in some way. You can be a servant and you can be a student. You can be a citizen in the creator's world. You can even be a follower of the creator. But only Christianity has the audacity to say that the creator can become your relational father. That you can have this kind of intimate relationship. And so when he comes and he in, in, in connects us to himself and calls us sons and calls us daughter, he's given us a name, taking us from children of wrath, and he's bringing us into his home, and he becomes our father. And understand that adoption involves a legal name change, that you are no longer what you were before was slaves, slaves to sin, but now you are sons of God. That's a name change. The legal change comes with a new identity, new uh, papers, a new passport. And one moment you are not sons and daughters, and the next moment suddenly we are. The moment that if you were to adopt a child in this world and you were to, to take that child into a courtroom and you say, we, before the judge, we want to adopt this child and this is to be his name, and they're going to put it on a piece of paper and he's going to bear your family's name. Perhaps you give him a new first name as well, and then he's going to slam the gavel. In that moment, that child has had an identity change, a name change. Now, we must ask the question, though, why sons? So we get a new name, and the name is sons. We look at this, and some, our, 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 we get upset. We wonder, God, are you, are you a misogynist? Paul, what's the deal here with using just, are you trying to cut the women out? This is distressing to us in the 21st century who all you know, see ourselves as budding feminists. And yet, we actually, we, the Bible doesn't seem to have a problem using this word sons. And in fact, we shouldn't have, you shouldn't have a problem with it either. For one, when he calls everybody sons, all Christians, female Christians shouldn't be upset by this any more than male Christians should be upset by the fact that God calls us bride. And that he loves me intimately like a bride. Listen, metaphors in the Bible are going to bring about some odd feelings, and this is an odd one, but they, are, they speak, communicate and speak a truth. Actually, what, what Paul is doing here is communicating is something quite brilliant. It's actually quite subversive to the culture in which Paul is writing. You see, in the Roman world, and indeed really pretty much all of the ancient world, Paul is being subversive because there women were oppressed. They weren't allowed to be heirs. They were not allowed to have an inheritance. They were not allowed to lead the family. They couldn't be the favored child. When Paul, though, takes the word sons, he is using it in its cultural context, which comes with it a legal understanding that you bear the name of the father and you bear all the rights of being the, the favored child, to be the child who will receive all the inheritance, which we're going to look at in just a second. And therefore, when Paul refers to all Christians, male and female, as sons, he is saying with that term comes all the blessings that are brought up in the cultural context of what it means to be a son in that world. And so Paul is saying this, the oldest son was the favored child. And so he's saying if you belong to Jesus, then you are the favored child, whether you're male or female. Now this is something starkly Crazy would have thought of as being crazy in the first century. That women would be the favored child of God 
And yet that is exactly what Paul's saying. Both men and women have the status, have the name, son, which means they are favored child. They are the top child. They are the best child. And that's what, you, what I want you to hear. When it says that you have a new name, when we have that understanding of adoption, that you have a new name, the new name is this, God's favored child. God's favored child. And so this is important for us in, in coming to terms with a world in which we are often not favored. You see, for some of us, we feel rejected and ignored. We may feel small in this world, maybe even for your femininity. Do you feel a sense in this world as if you are unworthy? Perhaps you are one who is of an older age, and you know, the world and the evil one and your own insecurities communicate to you that you are beyond usefulness. And in a world where usefulness equals worth, you now view yourself as worthless, and yet God looks at you and says, no, 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 no. Your name is favored one. Favored one. You're a 15-year-old and no boy seemed to cast an eye upon you and behold you as beautiful and desirable and worthy of pursuit. And you wonder, what does it say about my worth? God says, no, no, here is your worth that is caught up in this. What your creator and the one who is your father declares over you, my favored one. You're a mom laboring hard, serving your husband, caring for others in the church, caring for your children, and yet no one seems to reach out to mentor and to strengthen you and to help you. And you wonder, is the question is, do people just simply not view me as worth it? No, no. That is a lie of the evil one. God says, you are. You are my favored one. And the master knows your name, and he is placing his very name upon you. When we adopted our son, he took the name Henley. Actually, not even that. I, my name's Andrew. I don't come from a line of people. I'm not the third or the fourth. I never had any idea that I would ever name one of my children after me until we had the idea of adopting. And when I realized my son may not bear my biological natural traits and therefore I want to press upon him from the very place in which I declare him that he bears my Name And this is what God does for you. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 says this. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. God says, I will write my very name upon you. You belong to God. I've, I've said this, given this illustration before, that if I were ever to get a tattoo, it would be taken from a, a, a passage in Isaiah where there there's a verse that says that they have written on their wrists or on their hands, I am the Lord's. That's your name, favored one. This is why we constantly see people's names changing in the scriptures because they're favored ones. Their names are being changed because they're being brought into a new relationship, into a new status, into a new place. And so this is blessing one. You get a new name, a new identity in this world. No matter what the world says about you, you are the favored one of God. Second, second blessing, you get a new status. Or, then send this to the sound room, but I might rephrase it and say you get a new wealth. You get a new wealth. Understand that those who were who we were before we were made sons was slaves. We were slaves to wrath, slaves to sin. We had no rank. We had no status. But God says now you are children. 
And because you are children, you have the status as heirs. You have gone from being slaves in the household to being sons in the household. We are heirs of God. Slaves get the benefits of living in the house, and that's nice and well and good. They get fed. That's great for all their hard work, but only children are heirs. And in fact, in in the Roman world, those who would get adopted primarily usually were a favored servant. They were a servant who would be seen by the, the, the patriarch of the household as being one who was of high character, who had been trained and raised up to best take care of the household. And that servant who would, a slave, would go from the status of slave in the house to being a son in the house. Now, do you think that would change the way he did his work and his labor? And in adoption in the scriptures, what we say is that adoption gives a child the right to be an heir. In fact, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, it says, in him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. You get an inheritance through Jesus. In other words, you are rich in Jesus. Now, you kids, you may think that, my goodness, I, I don't feel very rich. And perhaps your parents even tell you this. Years ago, the only, child, the only show I was allowed to watch as a kid, with any kind of consistency, actually two shows. One was Sesame Street, and the other was The Cosby Show. Now, we're not allowed to talk about The Cosby Show, and so if you just promise not to go out and tell people I'm talking about The Cosby Show, we can all keep this hush-hush. All right? But I used to have to, that was the only show I was allowed to watch. But I remember this. There was one particular episode where the Cosbys are having a great distress because their middle school daughter is being made fun of in her, in her school because she's so rich. Now, you might recall that the Cosbys were a rather wealthy family. The wife was a lawyer, a very successful lawyer, and he was a successful doctor. And so there was money and wealth. But do you, if you ever remember, if you, those of you, the few of you who actually remember the Cosby show, and some of you, You'll have to YouTube it. I'm sorry. Um, actually, unfortunately, I think I might need to, to, to shelve this illustration from now on. Uh, this church is getting too young for even a 38-year-old to give illustrations from his childhood. But if you remember from the Cosby show, what he says, he looks at his daughter and he says, this is not a problem from you. You need to go into that school and say, I am not rich. My parents are rich. He says, because you, you, daughter, have nothing. You have nothing at all. And this is, but this is not actually the truth for us who are Christians. If you are in God's household, you are profoundly rich, profoundly wealthy. It means you have access to the wealth of God's power and God's riches. The host of heaven is for you. All of the earth will be given to you when you rule and reign with Jesus Christ in this world. This is your inheritance. And if you're an heir of God, then understand this. Your future is secure. And so act like it. Act like your future is secure. Face life with a confidence, knowing that you are not a slave, but you are a son who is the heir of this place. You see, the labor of the Christian life is to be controlled by the truths of the scriptures so that it affects your life. To have this truth pushed in. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, He looks at his disciples and says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither snow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Therefore do not be anxious. This is verse 31. Saying, What shall we eat or drink or wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Our Lord says, Do not worry. Don't worry. Be happy. 
And why can you not worry but be happy? Why can you not worry but have confidence? Is because he grounds it in the fact that he is our Father, and as our Father, he has the wealth of heaven, all the storehouses of heaven to provide for you. You are part of the royal family. And so we can say, like the old hymn writer said, my father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Of rubies and of diamonds of silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold, and you have access to them. And understand, this will set you free. This will set you free. This is pressed into your life. It will set you free from your stingy, Scrooge-like ways. When you cannot give to the impoverished of this world because you go, you know what? I have a, lim- I have a lack. And I just don't know if God is going to provide. But when you become convinced, oh, I'm not a slave. I am a child in his house. I have an inheritance of heaven. All of this is mine, then you can give it up. Perhaps your savings obsess so much so that your family looks at you and is like, uh, you know, they think a, camp in, a camping in the living room is a vacation with you. You are not allowed, no one is allowed to have any fun in your house. You're obsessed with these, with saving money, but you can't have fun. You can't give, be open-handed with your family because you're always worried about if it's going to go away, if it's going to go away. Maybe you're work-obsessed because you're also always fearful. Man, am I going to have a job? Is the money going to run dry? It could be, it could be that you're not living into the reality that you are wealthy. You're wealthy. And you're living like a pauper when God calls you his prince, his child, his son. You see, this is who you are. You have the hosts of heaven. The storehouses of bounty are for you. And so he's given you a new name, a new future, new riches of wealth. This is now your status. This is your legal standing. You have the rights to these things. But rights don't move us very much, do they? Like, it's, it's nice to know that I have a United States passport, but that doesn't really give me, like, giddy feelings. You see, what we need is Paul, what Paul does in Romans, he doesn't just speak about adoption in Ephesians and Galatians 4, but he also speaks about it in Romans chapter 8. You see, he takes the, the crusty legal nature of a Roman adoption and infuses it with the life-giving and animating warmth of the Spirit of God to press in our adoption upon us. And so it says this in Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, there's something more than simply a legal status. See, we all know here are fathers who abundantly provide for their kids. They're wealthy and their kids are well provided for. Their children's needs are provided for. They, they have the, the family name, and so they can get into the schools, and they can get the right job. These things are wonderful and great, but their kids, their kids can touch and have dad's money, but they cannot have dad. The credit card is available, but not the man. His money is there, but not a relationship with him. In, but in this adoption, in the adoption we have in Christ Jesus to God the Father, we don't merely get legal status, but we get relational status. This is the third blessing, that our adoption as sons to himself, it says, to himself, a new relationship. We experience our adoption as the Spirit removes fear by bringing us into the very presence of God where we get to intimately speak with God as our Father. We get to cry as Jesus cried, Abba, Father. 
Now, why, did you, why does Paul write to, the, to Greek people, that's who he's writing to, using an Aramaic term in Romans 8.15? He uses an, an Aramaic term. He had to interpret it for them. That's why it says Abba, Father. Father's the, he's giving his own interpretation. Because what, that, who is it who used the word Abba? Jesus did. This is how he spoke. And in the Aramaic, to use the word Abba, it was astounding to the apostles. and Anyone who heard Jesus use this word, when he would pray to God the Father, he would use the word Abba. It was a diminutive word. It was the word little children would say. It was like our use of the word daddy or papa. Abba. It was used in the home. It was a word of intimacy and affection. An infant, would, this would be the first word they would learn, right? Dada, mama. We have these words for daddy and mama because they're so easy to say. In the same way, think Abba. Abba, Abba, Abba. And Jesus tells us that we get to call on God in the same way he did. And therefore, as a practice of our intimacy with God, we get to call God our daddy. This is how he tells us, teaches us how to pray. Our Abba, who art in heaven. And we can cry out because we have a father and we know that he responds to the cries of his little children. He moves towards us and near us. And understand, this is a great blessing for those of us who live in a world of suffering where we often cannot understand the Father's will and way. It is so important to have the Father's presence. You know, my parents went to Eastern Europe, and if you know anything about the adoption world, Eastern Europe is this, they have these seemingly mills of orphanages. And when you walk into these orphanages, what is so shocking is not simply the sheer amount of orphan children in these rooms, but in particular when you walk into the infant rooms where they have the infant children is the silence. Because infant children, psychologists would note, is that they can cry and they can cry and they can cry. But after a while, if they are not tended to and cared for, in particular not simply fed, but touched and held and talked to, they cease crying. But we never have that problem. We can cry out to God even in our sufferings, even when we don't understand his severe providences in our life. And that's so good because we are going to experience suffering. Yes, on this side of heaven. So a man named Jim Wood, he runs a, a camp called Where's Valley Ranch in uh, Tennessee. He tells of a relationship of his son with his son Paul. His son was born with severe and significant defects and over the course of his life had 30 surgeries. On one particular year, his son had four brain surgeries. And there were times when Jim and his son Paul, because of the trauma of all that his son endured, were not close. You see, the trauma and the, the rift in the relationship came about because all those years of going to the doctor and enduring surgery after surgery, many of these procedures being excruciating and painful, that little Paul would look up to his dad's eyes and plead with them to put an end to it, and Jim could not. Why? Because ultimately he knew what was best for his son. So while it is true, you see, some of you have a strained relationship with God the Father because he has not given you what you asked. And it hurts. And yet, but God loves us better than we love ourselves. And he knows what we need better than we do. And he says, sometimes I may be saying no so that I can give you a better yes in your future. But here's what will always be true is I will never leave you. 
you will always have my presence. You will, I will always, you may be there like a child in the doctor's office getting a shot and they're screaming, but I am there to say, I am here for you. Call me Abba. And this is hard for us, though. This is hard for us to take these, this legal status and even this relationship and press it into our life. We say, embrace joy. The world calls me, I'm lonely. I'm unloved. The world says I am worthless. I feel that the world around me communicates my lack of value, but I'm just supposed to have joy. Joy. Find my identity in Christ. I hear it in every women's conference. Find my identity in Christ. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what it means. How does this happen? How do I find my identity in Christ? I need something to convince me of this. I'm I'm supposed to be able to give generously and and live abundantly and and give away so much of my wealth. I'm supposed to live a life without anxiety and without worry because I have an inheritance waiting for me. Well, that's actually really hard when I don't have enough money to pay the bills and feed my children. You have peace then and you get generous then. And it's so wonderful that I have access to God like a child's. I can invade his room and talk to him about my deepest fears and my longings. Don't mind, don't, now, I don't mind, mind you, I don't necessarily actually ever see him saying yes to my requests. And frankly, he says he's there and I can call him Abba, but I don't feel him at all. It's actually what you desperately need. You see, so many of you, you've prayed to receive Christ. You've come to church. Maybe you're part of a community group but you feel no intimate connection with your father. And so because of that, we live like orphans and we act like orphans and we act like slaves. How does an orphan act? We act self-defendant. You know, kids that are adopted, often if they've been in places of trauma, they will hoard food for years and years because they're never, they still have it instilled with them because they're not sure where the next meal is going to come from. And so we live self-dependent. I have to provide, I have to hoard my own righteousness because I don't know that it's been given to me. We have no confidence. I have no confidence in the Father's love for me. It may be here today and gone tomorrow, and so I have to do, act and live in a certain way in order to be confident in my own achievements, or we act like slaves. You know, John Wesley was a slave. He was a really good Christian. He was a pastor's son. He's the, he's the founder of Methodism. In the holiness movement, he was a pastor. He prayed daily. He witnessed. He took care of the poor. He housed the homeless. He took care of slum children. He taught the illiterate. He celebrated not one but two Sabbath days every week. He fasted at least once a week. And he even went so far as to go share the gospel in a God-forsaken place called Georgia. But he was not converted. And he said this later in life, that after God has warmed his heart, years later he said, I had the religion of a slave not the religion of a son. And so I say that, and we hear that, and I know this church understands our status, but do we believe it? Because we're so oriented towards performance. See, many of you have the status of sons, but you've never actually experienced the heart of it. There was, you need something, you need something more, some intimacy and connection from God where you hear his affection over you. You know, there was a, there was a boy in the Bible who was very offensively, he took his father's money and he ran off to the Middle Eastern version of Vegas and he lived a slanderous, contemptuous life. He gave himself to prostitutes and parting and then he decided everything goes wrong and so he decides to go home. And on his way home, he understands he has the status as a son. 
He hasn't ceased to be a son of the father. But on the way, he is saying to himself, I'm going to go home. Maybe my father will allow me to be a, what, a son? No. The prodigal didn't think he was going home to be a son. He was going home, he said, in the very hopes that my dad might allow me to be a slave in his household. And so all the way home, He's practicing his I'm sorry speech. Now, if you hear that, the story of the prodigal son, and you think that that's humility, then you have it wrong. That is unbelief. You see, the prodigal on the way home was still in unbelief. Yes, he was going to go say, I'm sorry, make me a servant. But you understand his unbelief is he still didn't understand the heart of the father. That the father's heart was generous and gracious. Did not only forgive him, but to restore him to the full status and full blessings and full privileges of sonship. And he didn't get it until his father comes out and puts a ring on him and puts a robe on him and kills the fattened calf. And then he hugs him and he what? To his son, he kisses him. See, adopted kids, and we might say adopted Christians, don't know they are adopted because of legal paperwork. But they know they are children of their new parents because of the voice of love and the kiss of affection from their father. You see, God doesn't simply want you to intellectually know that you've been adopted, but he wants you to experience the affection of his fatherly love, to hear his voice that convinces of you, not just simply in your mind, but in the deepest parts of your soul. And this is why Romans 8, verse 15, continues into verse 16. It goes like this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then it says this. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's actually bringing in, again, the kind of the cold, forensic nature of this. But it's not cold. It's a courtroom. The spirit is witnessing in the courtroom of our souls. And in a a Roman courtroom, in probate court, where you determine who is the rightful heir of the father's estate, you need two witnesses. And the two witnesses are the word of God and the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of you, saying, you are my child. If you can imagine, if you're in court one day and you're wondering, hey, am I going to be the one who is the heir of my father's wealth and all that he possesses and owns, you're going to go in, you're going to have two witnesses. One's going to be a document called a will, and the second that will be far more powerful to you palpably as if someone pulled out a recorder and took the voice of your father and said, this is my son, and he gets all my stuff. That's two witnesses. And that is what the Spirit's job is, to convince your soul, to convince your mind, to convince your heart. What? Convince you of what? That you are a child of God. They convince you of what your Father feels about you. And when the Spirit, he does this through the Word. He seeks to convince your soul through the Word. He's going to come and speak to you from the Word. And I want you to, to, to see, to, to, as we come to a close this morning, two places in particular that the Spirit will often point your heart to convince you of your sonship with Jesus, your sonship before the God the Father. He's going to say two things. First, the Spirit allows you to hear the Father speak words to Jesus. What does the Father say about Jesus? We see it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, actually, the very end of this section He said, all this grace, this adoption, this holiness, this blamelessness, it all comes about through the grace of God in 
the beloved. That's the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit of Jesus' baptism comes down, descends upon Jesus, and a voice rings out, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, there's Moses, there's Elijah, there's a few of the apostles. A God's voice rings out again, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus lived his life understanding that he was the beloved. The voice of affection rang in his ears. And so just as the Father says... To Jesus, you are my beloved, so he says it to you. Jesus, just as Jesus is loved by the Father, so you are loved by the Father. And frankly, that would sound like heresy, except for the fact it says it in John 17. Jesus prays, may they know your love as I have known your love. In other words, the reason why the Spirit points you to the places where God the Father speaks to God the Son and declares Him to be the Beloved, because it's that same voice that is now yours. This makes sense, right? That the Father would love even the adopted sons like the biological son, like the firstborn son. It's If you were to look even just the the metaphor of adoption, if you were to come into a a house where there's an adopted child and you would meet their children and the parents were to go, hey, here's our adopted child. He's okay. He's, yeah, I mean, some days, you know. But let me introduce you to my biological children. Now, them I really love. You would say, that is horrible. That is not the heart of your God. You have a loving father that he says, here's Jesus. And I... Here's Andrew, and I love them both. They are my sons. And just as he delights in Jesus, so he delights in us. So much so that if I can illustrate it or try to communicate it this way, when Jesus comes into the presence of the Father, God the Father leaps. When God the Father comes in the presence of Jesus, Jesus leaps as well. But the same emotional experience that the Father has in seeing Jesus, when Jesus comes into his presence, he has about you. He has about you. That his, he leaps when you enter his presence. You're a beloved son. Would you hear the voice of the Spirit declaring, echoing off the echo, the voice of God to Jesus? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here's the second thing the Spirit points us to so that we would be convinced that we are God's child. The Spirit will illuminate your, vo- your heart so that you would hear the silence at the cross. The silence at the cross. We are sons of God by adoption, but Jesus is the Son from all of eternity. And yet, that Son is sent out. From where? It actually says, Jesus describes his relationship with God the Father in John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. And Jesus, though, has made him known, it says. Now, literally, that phrase, at the Father's side, means pouring forth from the Father's bosom. In our, ter- in our language, it pours forth from the Father's heart. At the core, at the center of the Father's heart and desire is his love and affection for Jesus. And yet... He so longs to make you his child that he sins from his very heart. The one who dwells at his side sends him into the world so that he might gather a people who are not close to him but who are far from him and might bring us into the very center of God's heart. He sends his son 
out to bring you in, and he does it at great cost. How many years ago I heard the story of a family that adopted from the Congo. They were adopting a little boy. And they went through all the, the enormous amount of paperwork that goes along with an international adoption. And they, they raised and saved all the enormous amounts of money, $30,000, $50,000 to do an international adoption. And they finally, the, one November, they finally flew out to go to the Congo. The whole family goes out. They're going to pick up their little boy and they're going to bring him back home. And yet when they get there, they experience what many people have experienced in international adoptions. The Congolese government says, hey, we've changed a few things. You've got to do this. And they would do that. And they'd say, yeah, well, now we need you to pay this. And they would pay the fee. And they'd say, well, hey, we now need this paperwork filled out. And you've got to do this. And you've got to get these things done. And for six weeks, six weeks, they kept jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop. And finally, school was starting back in the States with their other children. And so after having been there for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, they fly back to the States without their son. And a couple weeks later, the wife comes to the rest of the family and she says, I'm leaving. I'm going back to the Congo and I am not coming home until I bring my son with me. Who would take such a cost? Your God did. Here is Jesus, the one who cries out in the, in the, in the garden, what? What does he say? He says, Father, what? it's actually the word, Abba, take this cup from me. And what does he get? Silence. Nothing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hears nothing. The Father removes his presence from him so that you and I might cry out and say, Abba, Father, all of our lives and know that we have God's presence with us. He's guaranteed it. Jesus, who has all the wealth and the riches of heaven, comes to earth and he says, I become poor so that you, the new adopted children, might become, have the riches of heaven. His name was brought, he was brought to earth and given a name that was cursed and spat upon and so that you might take on the very name of God. The son was treated like an enemy so that you and I, who are enemies, might be treated like sons. He forsakes his very heart of hearts so that he might bring you into his heart. This is who you are. This speaks to your value and to your worth. Kevin Azell, who's a Reformed Baptist preacher who I enjoy listening to because of his words on adoptions, adopted a number of kids himself, particularly from Africa. His kids bear their African name, and often they're very hard to uh, communicate. He was introducing one of his adopted kids, and the, the person was like, well, what, is, what does that mean? That name mean, and as a joke, he said, his name simply means I cost a lot. I cost a lot. And that's the gospel truth about you. Who would pay such a cost? Your God did. He poured out his son for you. You who cost a lot. It speaks of his worth and his value over you. And we have a hard time believing that. But you know what? That's why he gives us his word. So that he can point to these things time and time again. That's why his spirit has come to reside and live with you. And it's also why he gives us a table. A table where we can come and hear of God's grace and be the welcome of the family of God, the Father God who would call us in. This is the table of a loving father. Larry Crabb, who's a Christian counselor, one of his books was talking about a man that he was counseling, and this man's story had struck him. 
The man had shared that he had grown up in a very angry family, and the family, and the father in particular, was very known for his volatility and his, 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 just the stinging words. And the whole family kind of took on this persona, and so much so that the, the family times together were the worst, especially at dinner. At dinner time was filled with sarcasm or silence or screaming. And when he was 10 or 11 years old, he, would, he, he was recognizing this, and he just wanted to get out of there. And so he would eat his food as fast as possible and ask to be dismissed so he can bail out of the house as quickly as possible. And this man who was sitting with Larry Crabb in his office sharing this story said, I would leave my home with my loveless father and I would run down the street and I would crawl under the house of one of my neighbors. It was a, a, the home of a big family where lots of kids and they had this big wide porch and it was one of those porches I could crawl underneath and I could actually get up almost underneath their dining room and I could hear the family interacting. And I could hear the children laughing and the father sharing stories with the kids and communicating love and affection for them. And that was the family that I longed to be a part of. Larry Crabb said, he looked at him and said, well, here's the, goodness, the good news, truth of the gospel. If you could picture this, if you could picture you as that little boy underneath that porch, and this is what God the Father would do, is he would step out of that kitchen, he would come down the steps, and he would snag you right out from under that porch, and he would say, you come on in here, you join my family. You're in this family now. And he'd say, um, and I know you're struggling, Larry said, about the idea that God would love you even after all of your mistakes and your scrubs. Well, understand this, that this father, when you're at the table and you spill the milk, he doesn't slander you and scream at you and yell at you and, and throw barbs of sarcasm and roll his eyes at you. No, when you spill the milk and it's all over his clothes and all over yours and all over the food, this father, this good father will stand up and say, let's get him some good new clothes. And why don't you come sit in my lap and I'll help feed you you may have made a mess, but it doesn't matter. I'm here to cleanse you and to wash you. I have paid for the food, and there is plenty. Come and eat. Oh, beloved ones, for that is what you are. Come confess the fact that you have sour milk in your shirts, that you have made a mess. Come confess your doubts, but come to the table of mercy. Come to the Father's table where the voice of the Spirit might speak through the wine and the bread. This is what it costs so that you may hear the voice of the Father call you beloved. Come to the table. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a church that knows adoption, and that's a good thing. But, Lord, there are adoptive parents here who have forgotten the heart of it because they're so busy and they're so exhausted and they're so crushed under the weight of the challenges. They don't hear you anymore. And so God, restore to us the joy of our sonship that we would not be functioning as slaves in your household but as sons and daughters who are set free. Set free to enjoy and experience love and to give it to others. Would you do this? And Spirit of the living God, we need you to do this for us. We, life is too difficult and too hard, and we are, the lies of the evil one would love to sit here and tell us that we are anything but the beloved. And so Spirit of the living God, would you come and you speak. Where the lies scream, would you scream even louder? Actually, would you just simply whisper more effectively? 
And would you give us ears to hear when you speak over us your love and affection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.